Josh Summers, and I'm a yin yoga and meditation teacher and trainer, as well as a licensed acupuncturist. In today's episode, I launch part one of a three-part conversation that I had with the French yin yoga teacher trainer, Sebastian Poussel. Sebastian and his wife Muriel teach yin yoga teacher trainings throughout Europe and Asia. And one of the reasons I was keen to speak with Sebastian is that he shares a deep love of the Dharma, and I wanted to hear how he approaches integrating meditative practice within yin yoga. Now this conversation falls under the category of what I might call a shop talk interview. You hear me getting to know Sebastian in real time as we explore his reflections and practice of yin yoga and meditation. Now faithful listeners to this podcast will likely sense that there is some degree of daylight between my views on meditation and how Sebastian speaks of the practice. And while this is definitely true, in this conversation, and especially in the early stages of just getting to know Sebastian, I didn't want to confuse listeners by interjecting my own views on the topic very much. That said, I really, really enjoyed speaking with Sebastian. Stylistic differences around meditation aside, his love for yin yoga and meditation is palpable. And there's so much to be absorbed when he speaks about his practice. In particular, I just loved his emphasis on the importance of intention and attitude in one's meditation. But before I begin this episode, I just want to thank all the folks out there that are supporting this podcast by sharing an episode or link of the podcast with their friends or like-minded colleagues. As a free podcast, the best exchange of value for value and the best way to support my guests on this podcast is in expanding the reach of interest in the podcast itself. So really, thank you for sharing. And if you're listening and appreciating what you hear, please consider sharing with a friend. Just a few clicks of the mouse goes a long way to help me keep doing what I'm doing in service of broadening our understanding of yin yoga, Chinese medicine, and meditation. So thanks for that. And now, without further ado, I bring you Sebastian Poussel. Okay, today I am here with Sebastian Poussel. Sebastian, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Josh. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to connect with you. So for orientation for listeners, you are a yin yoga and meditation teacher based in France. Where exactly in France are you? We are like uh, with my partner, uh, an hour and a hour and a half from Lyon, which is kind of um, southwest or middle south of France. Yeah, and you do you teach with your wife, right, Muriel? Yes, yes, we always teach in, uh, together. A, a dynamic teaching duo. Um, <laughs> and, you, of course, you're not limited to France. I've seen, I mean, I, I, I came across you through the social media sphere, and um, I know you host one of the yin yoga groups, yin, the yin community. Was that your yeah, initiative? Correct. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. And and you teach internationally. Yeah, actually, um, when I, we started to teach in yoga, we were based in, in Asia, in Indonesia, for seven years. We lived there for seven years on the island of Java. 
Huh. And this is where we developed our uh, curriculum and teacher training. So we started to teach uh, first in Asia. I mean, Southeast Asia, mainly Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand. And then we started to, you know, go a little bit uh, to Japan and China and neighborhood country. Oh, wow. So I wasn't aware of that. You started, really got going for you in Asia and then you moved back home at some point. Yeah. Yes, we, we, we went back uh, to France not so long ago, like I would say yeah, a year and a half, two years. Two years then we are here in Europe. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. So that sort of raises the question um, just on a biographical level. Um, I'm always curious on how people come to yin yoga, whether it was um, through other forms of yoga that you discovered yin, or was it through the door of meditation? You know, what, what's, what's some of your history with the practice? Yeah, it was. Um, I was an Ashtangi for uh, six, seven years. We were living just above a shala in London. And then uh, it was during, you know, one of the, the, my first yin yoga class actually I discovered at the shala where, where we were practicing Ashtanga. Mm. And then the um, type of practice at the time you were doing, you know, once in a blue moon and uh, when you feel a little bit tired. or And, and I liked it straight away. And my first, um, my first uh, workshop in yin yoga was with Sarah Powers in 2006. So yin yoga was kind of a personal practice at the time and kind of a, a slower practice, you know, just to to come along with my Ashtanga practice. And mm. it slowly started to grow on us, yeah. And definitely changed when we met all teachers, uh, Paul and Susie Greeley. Mm -hmm. What changed? Well, meeting them was a big change. <laughs> uh, and, um, well, they, they're just phenomenal teachers. A, the understanding and the scope of, of their teaching was, like, uh, mind-blowing and... This is really when we already dived into the yin yoga practice as such. Did you ab abandon your Ashtanga practice? or? Yes. yes. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So no more Ashtanga? Well, once in a blue moon, so it's a reverse now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Got it. The daily practice is more yin, more kind of slow, and then, you know, once in a while I want to move my body. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, you know, just br briefly, what can you speak to what was some, um, in English we say game-changing, like when, like your game changes around your yoga. Um, what was so game-changing when you met Paul and Susie? Was it the, was it the anatomy piece? Was it the spiritual piece? Was it, or combination, or? It was their understanding of what yoga is about and, you know, their, their ability to share it with, with an audience and mm. the methodology that um, they created around, I would say yoga, not just yin, but yoga, really. Yeah. Um, you know, when you meet such, um, such teachers, it's often they're, they're challenging you in many ways, but they help you also to, to clear the path and uh, you have a much more um, clarity um, in your practice and in your teaching. Mm. Yeah. So it, it's, I'm hearing a lot about the yoga, like between Ashtanga and your shift from Ashtanga to yin. When and where did meditation become a, a significant part of your own practice? And, and then when, how did that come into your teaching? Um, I was always attracted to meditation. I, 
my first real encounter with meditation was through you i'm sure you know goenka you know the goenka method mm. the 10 days meditation they say boot camp yeah let's uh, actually let me yes. let me i don't want to interrupt you but uh let's let's pause and and, and explain what that is because i think this is in some mm-hmm. ways for many people uh what you're referring to as the goenka method is this it's a gateway uh opening for many people into the meditation world they there's Gwenka himself was a Indian man living in Burma, right? That's correct. And and he learned a, a particular style of vipassana. And yeah. Mm. And then if you, like I've, I've done one of the Gwenka retreats, and my sense was that he uh, he was kind of a businessman, and he came back to India, and then uh, sort of established this um, network, if a network of centers. Vipassana meditation centers all over the world, offering what you just said is these 10-day Vipassana courses. So wherever you go in the world, when you arrive, you basically have the same format of a, of a retreat where all yeah. the teaching is, is given through video and audio recorded mm-hmm. by Goenka, who's he's now deceased. Um, yeah. But it's a very strict, um, specific approach to practice. Yeah, that's correct. That's what I'm calling it a method or the Goenka method. Right. Um, the setup is always the same wherever you go. The thing is, uh, it's free. It's on based on donation. Um, that was a big change also. Um, somehow, you know, someone giving teaching for free. Um, and it's a life-changing or game-changing because you are immersed for 10 days and I call it a boot camp because you do this for 10 hours a day. I mean, like sitting meditation, 10 hours. Not in a row, so you have breaks in between, of course, but but dedicating 10 days just to sitting and focusing the mind and, you know, exploring what meditation is about is definitely a game changer. And uh, did you did you have much meditation experience before going on your first retreat? Um, here and there, but... Um, it's different. It's different. Really, what makes a difference to me is um, how much time can you dedicate to the practice. And I think it's important for meditators to to go into a retreat, you know, to do, to go into seclusion at some point in order to uh, advance and to get some insight, uh, have a glimpse of you know the real nature of the mind, as they say. Mm-hmm. And this this is like um, help you to carry on in your daily life. I would say if you only meditate like um, you know even an hour a day, which is which is already an achievement, um, it's not enough. It's not enough if if you're already serious about meditation. Okay, we'll plant a flag on that one. That would be, <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have to come back to that and discuss whether an hour a day is enough or not for. Any any kind of uh, achievement of or uh, development of something. Um, so, but this was you got into the 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 Gwenka system, the Gwenka method before yep. yoga, or was it during your yoga? No, life? I did uh, my first class of yoga class was in '94, but yep. I was involved in, in martial art before. Uh-huh. I um, I was teaching martial arts in France and uh, teaching and competing worldwide as well. Yeah. Um, I went to Japan when I was 17, and I did uh, what they call a kangeku, which is again an immersion in, into uh, budo, or budoshu. 
um, the martial art that I practice at the time was called Taido. And I had the chance to, to meet the founder, uh, sure, sure, um, the founder of this style, Seiken Shukumine. And that was my life, really. Um, you know, my life revolved around that. Uh, could teach, travel, and then, of course, uh, work on the side. Until I had a um, car crash accident, a severe car crash accident, oh, wow. which, um, you know, jeopardized my career in, in, in my teaching and, and martial art. And um, so I spent a, a year and a half Try to, trying to you know heal myself and uh, yoga came into the picture at, at this time. Ah, okay. Yeah. And in your teaching now, when you do trainings, you have a a section of your training dedicated to meditation. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Yes. So it's a, yes, it's we, a, we, there is always in we present like so far three modules, mm -hmm. and in every modules we have um, we have um, meditation section so to speak and yeah. but the the, the 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 third module is is definitely into meditation and philosophy so it's kind of a, a building up to yeah. a more meditative practice and what kind of meditation are you uh, integrating or offering in that in that training program we are based on um, concentration type of meditation which is called shamatha Shamatha, okay. When we're gonna we're gonna talk, get into the the nitty gritty around shamatha in a little bit. Um, so when you're when do you in terms of integrating meditation to to Yin Yoga, actually trying to p apply meditative practice or bring meditation into the Yin Yoga practice, do you primarily approach it with through the through the lens of concentration? You're trying to support people developing concentration in the practice as opposed to a more open mindfulness? That's right, yes. Okay. I, I do believe that concentration um, would be a platform for any type of meditation. Mm. So the way that I'm looking at yin yoga is also as a platform. And so everything is a tool, you know, in order to get the ultimate goal, and then can talk about that. But um, yes, I think that concentration is definitely the right tool. To start with, or if you don't start with concentration, at some point you will need it anyway. Yeah, yeah, and there's sort of—I mean, I know you know this, but people listening may not be aware of this. But there's sort of been a debate over the centuries in various lineages of Buddhism, just around how much concentration is needed before you shift into um, a, a kind of vipassana, open awareness practice to look deeply into things. Um, when you, I do want to come in and, and unpack the difference between shamatha and vipassana and how they work together with you, um, yep. but but maybe um, more on a general level before we go into the, the real details here. But more on a general level, um, in your experience in in bringing meditation into Yin Yoga, uh, what do you encounter as some of the difficulties or problems that students have, and what are what are some Sebastian tips and suggestions for for, the, for your students when they encounter those difficulties? Because I think a lot of people, well, meditation is getting more popular and, and that's for the good, but a lot of people are still intimidated by meditation, thinking it's something that they can't necessarily, that it's for, for somebody else, but not for them. 
And mm-hmm. so just you know, on a general level, like what do, what do you come across in your, in your own practice of teaching? Well, first I would say that yin yoga is, um, is really uh, the perfect practice in order to get introduced to what meditation is about or what is meditation. Um, because it brings a very important factor, which is a factor of slowing down and relaxation. And to me, it starts all there. And yin yoga allows you, uh, because of the time that we stay in the pose, like you know, around five minutes, so five minutes at the time, we could say it's a, it's a short meditation. Yeah. And if you break it down like this, it's much more um, you know, digestible for people. The ability to slow down is paramount also in, in yoga and meditation. So slowing down you know, the f- different rhythm, body rhythm, you know, uh, breath, uh, heartbeat. And of course, slowing down the mind and the way we relate to the mind and emotion. And, and that's the heart of uh, what the first things maybe you come across when you practice in yoga is uh, it puts you in a state of relaxation. Mm-hmm. And it's, uh, it's up to you if you want to to explore this state and what it is about, or do you get there? How long can you sustain that and cultivate it? Yeah. yeah do you, and do you find your students experience relaxation in the pose, or is it is it something that happens after the poses, after the practice? Uh, both, I would say, depends of of you know their um, inclination in life and which type of uh, yoga practitioner they are. But, uh, yeah, you can definitely relax in the pose after a while as you get used to the practice. But I would say the real relaxation is coming when we release the pose, Mm -hmm. what we call the the rebound, the rebound, the aftermath of the asana, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah. And and that's which sort of for those that aren't familiar with that term rebound, is it what you're lying on your on your back in a shavasana yeah. or on your stomach maybe? Yeah, that's correct. You know, just releasing. Uh, to me, the asana has two parts. There is the willful effort that you put into it, even in yin yoga is not so apparent. And then there is the release of the asana, which is the rebound or the short shavasana. And so. At the end of the shavasana, this is the end of the asana, the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. So the rebound is part of the asana. Correct. Yeah. Yes. That's, that's, that's a good way of thinking of it, I think, because I was recently doing a training myself, and, and we were, I was having rebounds. I call them, I changed the name a little bit. I call it resonance poses because I feel like you're feeling the resonant sensations, the resonant effects. But it's the same thing, and... Um, one or two people were saying that when they'd go into the Shavasana rebound, they didn't want to come out again and go back into another pose. And they're saying, can't we just keep doing all the poses? (laughs) So (laughs) I said, well, that's attachment. You're seeing attachment in your mind. (laughs) That's right. Yes. You know, and you, you get a good rebound, uh, after the asana. So it's a, it's an ongoing process. It's like the two sides of the coin. Mm -hmm. Like many things that we find in, in yoga, such as, um, you know, in the eight limbs, when they, we talk about um, dharana and dhyana, or the same with Buddhism, shamatha and vipassana, you can't really, uh, you know, put them apart and separate them. They, they come together. Mm-hmm. Do your students express or speak to difficulties they have with their meditation in, in your yin practice? Yeah, um, 
maybe one of the most common uh, obstacles or difficulties that um, I found is uh, the uh, inability for people to stay still, to stay still, like what is stillness? You know, and, and so often at first when they want to be still, they might get a little bit rigid and when they find stillness, uh, how long can they, can they stay into this state? So that might be the first obstacle. So difficulties with stillness. So that begs the question, what do you, how do you define stillness? Yeah, well, there is a um, graduation of stillness, as, as, um, as you can guess. Yeah. Um, stillness of uh, the body first, you know, having a body which is relaxed and still at the same time, um, which means that we can move in stillness. But when we move in yasa, transiting from one asana to another or from one asana to shavasana, keeping the quality of connection that we have. And that, to me, is what I call stillness. Not disturbing the mind-body connection. So the, your awareness is connected to the body. If you say, so say, for example, you, you come into a pose and you have the body not moving. You keep the body from moving. But then if you decide to move, you, you're saying you could move within this, your, your version of stillness, but as long as you're aware of it, as you're moving, that is a component of that stillness. Yes. Ah. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I see that myself, that students, particularly if they're new, they're, there's a lot of fidgeting in yin yoga at times, or squirm, yeah. they squirm around. And, um, but the other element is usually there's, there's frustration, I think, with their mind, whatever their mind uh-huh. is doing. Yes, it's... Um... That's a big one. <laughs> That's a big one for sure. So do, um, do you have any tips of the trade that you recommend for achieving? Let's say, let's focus on like mental stillness. How do you mm-hmm. c- communicate or recommend uh, instruction around that? It's, um, to me, it's a matter of, um, it's more an attitude rather than something to achieve. And it's about providing the right type of effort. Often people put, put, push themselves too much. So if you push yourself too much at some point, then you will have to move out of, of the, the context of stillness because now you come to your limit. Or if you don't push yourself enough, then you never get there. So it's really a matter of having the right type of effort, which is the way I'm I'm articulating this is um, um, a modest, moderate effort mm-hmm. for a long time. So being being persistent, yeah, and endurant in in the same type of effort. But starting, you know, uh, in a mild, soft, moderate way. Yeah. Do you know the story of Goldilocks? Yeah. 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 It, it sounds as you're talking. It sounded to me like. Like just so as we talk about in yin yoga, finding the Goldilocks zone of just the right amount of sensation, not too much, not too little. It's like the, this effort, this patient persistence you're describing seems like the Goldilocks zone. It's not too little effort. It's not too much effort. Um, I can recognize in my own practice when I am efforting too much. I'm putting too much like effort. And you kind of spoke to that just now, like when you... You try to get in there, but you you can't get you you come to an edge or something because you're you're trying too hard. 
-hmm. what do you how do you experience that or how do you how do you see that happening we have to question our intention from the beginning intention what is your intention when you come to yoga or what is your intention when you sit for meditation and if you don't question that you just jump onto the practice and you know the aware of of you know this kind of uh, pushing forcing behind i want to get there i want to reach this state or i want to get some result and if you're not aware of that that is what you know push push you forward maybe too far too quick into the practice so the, the intention is is maybe the first things that i would look at Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, readjusting what needs to be readjusted. You know, remembering that okay, there is nothing to achieve as such. Uh, just me wanted to develop a type of relaxation. If we start there, then uh, you can't can't be wrong. That sounds good. Yeah, I, I mean, the relaxation is one that I have heard emphasized a lot, particularly in the West. And I thought maybe this could be the the last question I have for you in this section before we jump into talking about shamatha more, but um, as a general observation, I'm curious if this is your experience too, because you've practiced in Asia um, and the West now. Uh, If you go to, when I I went to Asia, the teachers there, when they talked about right effort, the amount of energy you put in, the teachers in like in Burma that I had would say, you can't try hard enough. Try harder, try harder, try harder. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and yeah. Then, and then and then my Western teachers would always sort of say things like, no, just relax, soften up, relax. This, don't try so hard. You, you're pushing too mm. much. Um, yeah. And it seems think- like, yeah, the, it seems like the sense I got was that uh, there's a, a kind of a cultural difference there. Exactly. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. I think uh, Western people already are competitive, you know, by culturally maybe in the way we are we've been brought up, and so we see meditation as something to achieve. Often, it's not always the case, of course, but maybe in the background of our mind, yeah, you know, I'm doing this because of something. Mm-hmm. And um, in Asia, it might be different because it's part of the background, it's part of their life, you know, there is a story around meditation since uh, centuries and centuries. Uh, Everything around the culture also resonates with this, you know. Um, So for them, it's, it's, um, they they might need to be pushed, you know, and, um, but not, not in a way to achieve something. If, if, you know, I'm I'm not sure if I'm clear here, but, um, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. It's a cultural, cultural thing. So maybe if if we have, I have most of my students are Western, if not all of them. <laughs> like, I would say, uh, you know, we can. I try to emphasize that relaxation receptivity piece over the striving. Um, but I think you know, in Asia, at least in, in the Buddhist cultures of Asia that I've been in, they have the the view of reincarnation pretty strongly so they i think what i've heard is that asians feel like oh well we can come back again and again and we have more we have more we don't have this just this life to get enlightened we have we have plenty of t- chances <laughs> you know? and in the west maybe we don't hold that that view as as much and feel like we okay if we're going to do something we got to get it done today mm-hmm. but yeah yeah that, that might be one one of the reasons yeah um, 
Another thing that I found difficult for people to deal with is uh, also the simplicity of the meditation practice. Um, you know, meditation is nothing really difficult. Put it if you put it on a paper, or if you, you know, just try to understand what is the process of meditating, can easily be understood. And um, in the type of meditation that we share with our students is concentration. So it's often what we try to um, get is one-pointedness of the mind. And there is a lot of uh, repetition and it's very simple. And I found that people are um, resisting this. The mind is resisting. The mind is reluctant to do something simple, sim so simple, you know, for a long period of time. And especially with Western, you know, it's it's more challenging, I would say. Also. Mm. So the sim yeah, the simplicity of it. It as you were speaking about that, it reminded me of um, one of my teachers' teachers, uh, the the Indian master Manindra. Do you know Manindraji? He he no. taught in Bodh Gaya. He was he was in the Mahasi lineage and okay um, taught in Bodh Gaya. Teachers like Jack. Uh, uh, say Joseph Goldstein, Daniel mm -hmm. Goleman, Sharon Salzberg all spent time with Menindra. But he used to say, "Practice is the simplest thing, the hardest thing." Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. You know, it's, I, agree. It, I agree with that. And on paper, as you said, the instructions can be quite simple, but but sort of surrendering and and relaxing to that simplicity is a challenge. That, that is a challenge for most people. Definitely, especially in in modern society, the way we live now uh, nowadays is, you know, we multitasking all the time, and then asking the mind to do something quite opposite to it uh, could be a challenge. Yeah, we can talk more about those challenges, but um, for now, let's we'll keep it simple, patient mm -hmm. perseverance, stay with it, and um, stillness. Still, and let the stillness ripen that's that's the phrase that i've often liked is just oh, you're 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 in some ways i i see what you think of this but i i say in meditation we're just trying to take care of causes that promote other things to develop and ripen in time and you can't it's like a garden you can't force plants to grow you can just sort of take care of making sure that the seeds are well yeah. planted you can yeah. Keep them watered, keep them free of weeds, but you can't force them to grow on a on a time scale that to your liking. So you have to just be patient and, and consistent with it. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's always coming back to again uh, intention, attitude, approach. I think that's that's maybe even more important. That uh, which type of meditation or which practice or which method you use is what is your intention, what is your attitude during the practice. Mm -hmm. Because that's what we linger after the practice, and that's where the practice comes from as well. So, paying attention to this is is a, a big one. Yeah, I think that's a really important point: intention and attitude, more so than any given. You could do whatever technique you want, but it's it's really the intention and attitude that will sort of steer the ship and and fuel how you how you develop and and grow in in whatever practice you're doing.
Okay, so behind all techniques, in some ways, the most important elements of good practice are one's intention and attitude. I hope you enjoyed the first part of my interview with Sebastian Poussel. For more on Sebastian and his teachings, please check out his website. It's www.with-yinyoga.com. That's www.with-yinyoga.com. In the next episode with Sebastian, we dive into his practice of shamatha meditation, discussing what shamatha meditation is and how it functions within vipassana meditation. I look forward to sharing that conversation with you soon. And of course, if you'd like to study or train with me in yin yoga, please check out yinyogaschool.com. That's yinyogaschool.com. Thanks so much for listening today, and I'll see you in the next episode soon.